How's your brain feeling? Uh, my brain is feeling okay. I, I, I can't, I have a mild headache like all the time and then I get severe headaches three or four times a week. Yeah. Severe headaches to migraines. So today I'm okay. But yeah, I, I went to the neurologist and I'm going to get Botox. Nice. Yeah. And they said, um, because they basically covered my forehead um, and temples, and then the back of my neck and my shoulders. So it should also give me, um, some pain relief. Mm. So. Well, have the doctors considered an alternative explanation? Like you're being attacked by demons. <laughs> uh, no, no one has suggested that I'm being attacked or sexualized by demons. Because that's because the people we're talking about today aren't here. Because speaking of massive headaches. Oh, okay. Have you ever seen any of the Conjuring movies? I have. I saw the first one. You saw the first one. What did you think of the Conjuring? Um, It was okay. Yeah, I liked the Conjuring. In fact, I liked the, the Conjuring as, movies in general as movies. Yeah, as a horror movie, it was a solid seven. Yeah. It was it, it was decent. Had some good scares, some fun, and it presented uh, you know some heroes you could root for. Yeah, the cinematography <laughs> in it was really good. Well, James Wan is a great director. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, that movie, it was a good movie. I liked yeah. it. So, uh, just it as solid. a film goer and a horror fan, like I said I sometimes like the weirder, more fringe stuff as a more horror dude. But in terms of like mainstream pop horror, Conjuring, good movie. Um. So, because it's spooky season, it's October as we record this. Um, My been, favorite time of year. Yeah. And we've been on hiatus for a little while. So, I thought I would ease us back in. So, instead of talking about anything super, like, historically important or weighty, you know, in terms of big events, we would just get a little lighthearted, uh, talk about some ghosts and demons and werewolves and shit. Huzzah. So, there we go. So, uh, yeah. The Conjuring films, which at this point, there are three Conjuring movies and a bunch of spinoffs. There's like three Annabelle movies, two nuns, uh, one La Ur The Curse of La Llorona, which is sort of like the one that's sort of on the edge. Yeah, that's like Mexican folklore, too. Yeah. So it's the – and that one's actually supposed to be like the scariest one because, also, I mean, The Conjuring the was – it, it wasn't that scary. Yeah. It was a decent movie, but it wasn't scary. Depends on what scary. you're going for. So, so for anybody living under a rock or, or digging this up 100 years from now, the Conjuring films present a, a pair of demon-fighting, ghost-busting heroes named Ed and Lorraine Warren. So this attractive pair uses faith, psychic powers, and expert knowledge to battle the forces of Satan and free people from demonic possession. So outside of their work, they are presented as wholesome, selfless, and deeply compassionate people who do their work as a service to God. And they are deeply in love and have a damn near perfect marriage. Oh, and the whole God thing. It cannot yes. be stressed enough. They are they are very religious, and I want to say they're Catholic. Yes, they're Catholic. And let's just say that the, even though the movies certainly present them as Catholics and they're always talking to priests and, and doing all that shit, it tones down just how <laughs> Catholic these people are because that's going to be a huge part of what we're talking about today. So uh, we're going to look at the real-life Warrens and see how they hold up to Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. Spoiler alert. Not great. Well, I mean, just from pictures. <laughs> well, I mean, physically, it's not, it's not even fair to compare them to movie yeah. stars. They are, you know, the movie Warrens are very good looking. Yeah, and I have to say, and especially, like, I saw um, part of a documentary um, I want to say it's called the Devil's it's called Road. Devil's Road, and I, yeah, it is one of our uh, research points for today. Okay, even yeah, though, even though I, that is a blowjob of a documentary. Oh, it is. I was like trying to decide. I was like, is this a documentary or propaganda? So I kind of like. So it's a it's a docuganda, <laughs> or yeah, it's like well, it's like most of those paranormal, like. Anytime you're watching a, a documentary about these kind of topics and there's like dramatic music and quick cuts and, and dramatic voiceovers. The only really interesting thing was it did have interviews with the Some original the people. people 
that mm-hmm. were experiencing some of this stuff. So, Great. so yeah, and we're going to be talking about that and those people and all uh, of it. And all we're going to get all into it. all of it. Okay, yeah. cool. So, um, by the way, everybody, this is Chainsaw History, the podcast where we take beloved fixtures now in pop culture for over 10 years and reveal them to be slimy grifters and sex criminals. That is not true. That is, we've, we've done other things. Sometimes <laughs> we that's talk what ab- we're doing today. Sometimes we talk about maligned women as well. <laughs> uh, we'll see if you think we're maligning this woman, uh, Lorraine Warren. Uh, just <laughs> she maligned herself. As a disclaimer, we are a comedy podcast. I'm not a historian, but I did read The Halloween Tree by Ray Bradbury once. And uh, yeah, I now know some stuff about the Mexican Day of the Dead. So I'm qualified. Awesome. Um, I am qualified to wear these headphones and talk into this mic by the powers vested in me. Yes. <laughs> May the power of Mike can... Mike said I could. <laughs> uh, if you go to chainsawhistory.com, you can find ways to support the show. Check out our bonus content uh, and other shows like the Value of series where we read uh, children's books to each other and No Time for Love, Dr. Jones, where we uh, talk way too much about the adventures of Indiana Jones. So yeah, uh, the Warrens aren't just fun weirdos who became famous for their demon-battling exploits. Uh, They are shady grifters who get into some really ugly territory. No. Like... This is the thing that sucks. Like when I started this, the whole idea was to do something a little more lighthearted, knowing that they're probably going to be fraudsters and assholes or whatever. And then it just gets darker than I wanted it to. It, it always does. Every time you learn too much about people, especially people who are admired by so many. Well, people start out as complicated. That's just also, human beings. When you, anytime you get something that's, not to be too mean to Catholics, but let's just say stuff tied into the Catholic church often takes you to some dark places involving underage people. Well, I mean, I'm not a big fan of organized religion and neither was Jesus. So, (laughs) um, Jesus was a real cool dude. He was probably also a socialist. So like we're saying, we don't, we usually talk about people who actually have a real effect on like history and events and like, you know, affected the course of how America especially went. I think it's safe to say the Warrens benefited from and contributed to some uh, significant cultural moments from the public obsession with ghosts uh, and possession to the satanic panic of the 1980s. They suck. Yeah. Well, and a lot of their the techniques and stuff that they not only that they used but they some of them that they invented i think that are used well they were today. they were certainly I mean, pioneers they made ghost hunting a popular thing to do they were part of this first generation of people doing this and one of the first to really make a name for themselves this is the reason the channel the travel channel now sucks <laughs> yeah because of the that's all it is. Their now. descendants are now all over it all the time. No, we can't have great hotels God. anymore. We have to have ghost hunters Ed, times 500 or Ed whatever. Ed Warren died just a couple years before YouTube was invented. And thank God. Because that. Oh, no one wanted to look at his fat, nasty but he, ass. But he still did it. Like, trust me, he, the, the amount of Ed Warren footage out there. From including the uh, their own TV show they did for a while. Um, so anyway, let's get into it. Uh, the research on this one was mostly articles and interviews. This was a lot of smaller things instead of the usual one or two books. Um, I did read the authorized biography called The Demonologist, The Extraordinary Career of Ed and Lorraine Warren by Gerald Brittle that I think came out in like 1980. Okay, um, so I, that sounds like a blowjob. I don't recommend it. Yeah, it was totally a blowjob. Um, and also had a very um, clear point to it which is to scare the shit out of you so you'd join the Catholic Church. Um, also watched the documentary The Devil's Devil's Road, which was on Max. <laughs> oh, I hate everything. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the book The Demonologist is the closest we get to like an autobiography because it was kind of an author. They, the Warrens didn't really write their own stuff, but they hired writers to do for them or came up with partnerships with writers. The Demonologist gives us the version of the Warrens that the Warrens wanted us to have. They literally worked with this guy to present this this message in this way. So this is how they're described in the introduction of the book. Quote, 
Ed and Lorraine Warren are a cordial, happy couple in their mid-50s who have a unique friendship and marriage, and distinctly positive outlook on life. What the Warrens have seen, however, and what they have learned over the course of their extraordinary combined career has given them wisdom way beyond their years, unquote. Oh, gross. So the version we get in the movies very much matches this description. I mean, they sound so nice. <laughs> yeah, they sound too nice. They sound like saccharin. But this isn't the introduction to some boring biography, Bambi. This book is about kicking some demon ass. <laughs> so the first few pages give us a scene in which the Warrens, freshly returned from a haunted house in Long Island, yes, that haunted house in Long Island, are terrorized by a demonic presence. Ed confronts a swirling black shape with signs of the cross in the name of Jesus in order to save his wife from a psychic assault. So according to the demonologist, quote, what confronted Ed and Lorraine Warren in those early morning hours was not a ghost, nor was it something seen only by them. The same swirling black mass has been reported by others. Rather, this was the appearance of something far more ominous than a ghost could ever be, the manifestation of a comparatively rare phenomenon known as an inhuman demonic spirit, a preternatural entity. The inhuman spirit is considered to be possessed of a negative, diabolical intelligence fixed in a perpetual rage against both man and God. Unquote. Oh, sounds so serious. So the forces of Satan have followed Ed and Lorraine back from New York, from the house, and the house that would soon be known as the Amityville Horror House. And so we get this action and uh, a taste of their most famous case before we even get to chapter one. It's like Ed literally sees this tornado of of black energy that he has to, you know, throw you know his cross at and yell at until it goes away to save Lorraine. Yeah, weren't they going to do like a blessing on and, that house yeah. and then it never happened? Well, we're going to get to that. Okay. So, but this was literally just like this little tease, like, yeah, this thing, like right after they went to the house for the first time, you know, they got attacked in the middle of the night. And they were like, and threw something at yeah, it. So right. Ed screaming at demons is something we're going to be talking about a bit. Um, <laughs> so according to the book, Ed and Lorraine's work, quote, by necessity was not public. Instead, the Warrens remained in the background, either working privately with individuals experiencing true spirit-related problems or as investigators performing on-site research where strange or unusual phenomena were in progress, unquote. So it's this humility that explains all the books, movie deals, speaking engagements, and constantly being on the news. Very humble. The humblest. <laughs> but it's time to light the candles, hold hands, and conjure up the past. The story of Ed and Lorraine Warren begins damn near a hundred years ago, because it was on September 7th, 1926, that a thick-necked and large-foreheaded baby was born in Bridgeport, <laughs> Connecticut. One that we could later thank for the nun, too. The kid's name was Edward Warren Miney. Miney? Miney. Yep, Ed Warren isn't actually Ed Warren. So the very first lie is his actual name. You know, I would change that, too. No, and, and fair. So according to Ed's IMDb page, and thanks not just for the Conjuring movies, but the many other movie deals he was involved with going way back before that. He's got he's, so he's, many. He's got a bunch of credits. So his IMDb page says, quote, mm -hmm. he was the son of Pauline Dennis and Frank Edward Miney. His father was of Slovak and Czech descent, and his maternal grandparents were Polish, unquote. I mean, Miney is a yeah. really... Terrible last name. So, yeah, no idea exactly Fair. why, when, or how Ed decided to ditch his last name in favor of the middle name. Whatever. But Miney um, is his last name on his official public documents. Uh, maybe he really, maybe he wasn't too fond of his father, Frank. I mean, we really don't know a lot about Ed's dad other than he was a Connecticut state trooper and apparently wasn't too keen on any of Ed's ghost shit. And fair. Yeah. Uh, also, there is some rumor that um, Frank was abusive to his wife and children, which also makes sense. Yeah, that's um, that's fair, too. Listeners, Google 40% of all cops if you don't know what I'm talking about, and you can catch up with us. Um, Ed reports that he was five years old when he first encountered the supernatural, the spirit of the former owner of his family's house. He described it as a semi-transparent apparition wearing some sort of shroud. She scowled at the kid and vanished, just like... Uh, Ed said he was scared, but, uh, but there was no mention of whether he filled his little tidy whities <laughs> He was five. So when Ed told his family about the incident, his dad gruffly told him to forget what he saw and don't tell anybody else. Yeah, don't be a lunatic, Don't dork. ever tell anyone else, which is why we know about it today. Today. <laughs> Just told everyone who would listen for the rest of his life. Um, Ed came from, and this is going to shock you, an incredibly religious family. 
No. They're Catholic immigrants. It uh, didn't just come out of nowhere? Uh, he said that his grandfather had bequeathed his entire life savings to the church so that a stained glass window of St. Michael uh, could be installed in their local uh, parish. Okay. And Ed was fixated on it, quoting from the demonologist, quote, it was Michael the archangel who drove Satan from heaven and is the patron saint of the exorcist, unquote. Okey-dokey. So it's like granddad made this window, you know, donated this stained glass window of the, the most badass of all the angels. And Ed's like, that, I, I'm going to be that angel here on earth. Fighting demons. Or at oh. least that's what we're, we're told. Um, uh, okay. Frank the cop dad reportedly never missed mass a day in his life. So naturally, Ed went to Catholic school and says he paid attention to his spiritual education despite how much he hated dressing up for church. Which is maybe the one time me and Ed are on the same page. Uh, okay, first of all, how do you never miss mass? I, I have literally just missed days of my life. Well, They're this, just gone now. This guy w- was serious about going to church. Um, because he says in Catholic school, you learn about the devil, demons, and spirits as a matter of fact. And he was trying to figure out all this ghost shit that, and psychic crap that was going on in his life. So Catholic school was literally teaching him because, you know, in Catholic school, the, there's no separation between the secular and the religious. It's just all part of your education and that demons are, a, you know, and spirits are a very real thing. Um, so he told the story about a recurring, uh, having recurring dreams of a nun visiting him. And not the the mean nun from the oh, movie. I was about to say, is this where the nun came uh, from? <laughs> I, I don't think so, because uh, so when he described these dreams to his father, uh, his father said, "No, that was um, that was my late that was my sister, your aunt Ed, um, a nun who apparently had painful health issues and had died before he was born." Um, so Ed tells the author of the demonologist, "Quote: During one of my dreams, sorry, wow, where that can, where did that accent come from? I got to get." I was doing my Ed all this time. I got to get back to my Pepperidge Farm accent. There we go. <clears throat> Quote, during one of my dreams, she told me something that took on meaning only when I grew up. Edward, she said, you will tell many priests the road to go down, but you will never yourself be a priest. Well, I'm not a priest today, but I do work closely with them and tutor those who have been assigned to work in the area of demonology and exorcism. Unquote. So the demonologist also tells us that Lorraine Rita Moran grew up only three blocks away from Ed. She was a smart girl who just happened to be clairvoyant. Just by happenstance. Uh, She says as a child that she didn't realize that not everyone has six senses or the ability to see through time. Uh, So one experience happened. How do you see through time? Well, I'm sure about to find out. So, for example, uh, it was Arbor Day. And they they plant a tree, you know, as you do on Arbor Day. Quote, just as soon as they put the sapling in the ground, I saw it as a fully grown tree. I looked up into its massive branches filled with leaves blowing in the wind with no idea I was experiencing second sight. The nun standing beside me prodded my arm and said in her usual stern way, Miss Moran, are you looking up at, why are you looking up into the sky? I told her I was just looking into the tree. Are you seeing into the future? She asked me just as sternly. Yes, I admitted. I guess I am. Unquote. You know, that's where everyone leaps to. You're a witch. So then this witchcraft earned her swift Catholic punishment where she was forced to sit and pray all weekend. So from that point forward, she kept her superpowers to herself. That's okay. Until I was, <laughs> I was about to say, isn't, that's not even what they said on Devil's Road. Yeah, well, don't because expect they gave... don't expect consistency in the <laughs> Okay. Stories. All right. Well, it then... changes over time and I could give you five different versions of just about any of this. So I'm mostly drawing from the demonologist here for as the the sort of accepted canon. Okay, so that's the first This is I, I mean, I ba- I know like a smidgen about this. It could fill a thimble and I still know that wait a minute. That yeah. that's already I can that's horseshit. The stories shift and become different, uh, altered to depending on the audience and the context and everything. So, um, so auras have nothing to do with the, Okay, whatever. Well, she she also say that she could see people's see, auras, auras that she could see like that was I the didn't lights. I didn't quote that part of it. But that was another thing she said she could see and just didn't realize that not everybody could do that. That wasn't one thing she said, mm-hmm. but of course. And they also told that, and the nuns told her to never say that yes. again. Yeah, because you know that's 
and that was the that was the last time she ever told anyone until you know then she did a lot so uh okay you knew these two were going to get together eventually seeing as how they were neighbors less than a year apart in age who attended the same school and went to the same church destiny yes as these the movie two said. weirdos were going to run into each other um the story of their first meeting is actually romanticized in the conjuring three so you haven't seen that one yet but Literally, the, the meeting when he was working as an usher in a movie theater, a very romanticized version. So in the movie, it says that they, they met, and then after, uh, after she got out of the movie, he was walking with her home. They got caught in a rainstorm, and they ran under a gazebo, and then they, and they kissed for the first time, you know, taking shelter from the rain as 16-year-olds. And that was um, any other I want to say I, I heard that. So I can't tell you where. Except... So that's the movie version. That's in fact, the movie in version? Fact, at the, and then to spoil the very end of the movie. I didn't even see The Conjuring 3, so yeah. okay. So to spoil the end of The Conjuring 3, it even ends with uh, Patrick Wilson's version of Ed buys Lorena Gazebo so they can make out in their backyard. That's that's the end of the movie. I didn't mean to ruin it all for you, the gazebo ending. But uh, however, the real life Lorraine that's tells us. That's very romantic. I know, but, but that's the movie version. Wait till you hear how romantic the, the Lorraine tells it. Uh, she says at 16, she had zero interest in boys until a friend introduced her to a hyperactive theater usher. Uh, according, this is from the blog on the New England Society for Paranormal Research website. Quote, when she saw Ed, she thought to herself, gee, what a nice looking young man. She later related how spivvy he looked with his sharply creased pants and perfectly coiffed hair. She recalled, and he smelled like Noxzema. Unquote. <laughs> He smelled like a bunch of zits. He smelled like Noxzema. He just like smelled space cream. like a nasty like a little teenage, teenage boy. Uh, so um, after the oh. girls, after the girls, you saw know, for the record, I've had teenage boys. They do not smell nice. They smell the opposite of nice. Have you? If I, I want chaperones, give them jars of Noxzema. <laughs> I chaperoned a middle school field trip once, and the bus ride almost knocked me out. It was horrible. Yeah. My high school girlfriend made me shave using Noxzema instead of shaving cream for some reason. She was all about Noxzema. Never understood that. So I don't know that smelling Noxzema was a turnoff. Apparently Lorraine was all about it. But she I was want to smell she was, like She was 16 and never and... stood near a boy before. So, you know. Um, after the girls saw their movie, Ed offered to buy them all a Coke at a local soda joint. Um, the first two girls got their sodas for a nickel each. But Lorraine ordered an ice cream float that said Ed back an entire dime. Quote, I always knew that she was a gold digger. Ed would be quoted later. What the fuck? <laughs> yeah, this, these romantic Women, people. am I right? It's so romantic. Afterward, Ed walked the girls Gold home. digger? <laughs> I mean, She's a gold digger? She She's... fucking sent him back 10 goddamn cents in, you know, the 1940s. Ah. Uh. Okay, we're just gonna we're just gonna continue on because we have no choice. I would so, like to end the story here. It's like good night, folks. Yeah, this, they, they left all of this out of The Conjuring Three. It ended up in the cutting room floor for some reason. Afterward, Ed walked the girls home because there's three of them, one at a time, and then Lorraine for the last. But being a good Catholic kid, she reminded him it wasn't appropriate for Ed to walk her to the door. So he ran across the street so she could go the rest of the way alone. And apparently she had another one of her psychic visions because she says that as Ed crossed the street, suddenly she could see him as he would one day be a full-grown hulky. <laughs> She's, wait a Man. minute. So she saw what he she would become, become and she was like, I want that? Well, she saw, well, she saw the future. She knew she had no choice. Uh, she, that night she wrote in her diary, <laughs> quote, today I met the man I am going to marry, unquote. And then she tried to drown herself in the bathtub. So, <laughs> <laughs> the sorry Conjuring fans, the real life Ed and Lorraine didn't make out in a gazebo or, or even hold hands. Uh, this is uptight Catholic romance. So we were in, so like I said, we're in the early 1940s, and as you might remember, America was you know dealing with some shit. The whole world was dealing with some shit. It was not just yeah, us. It was a whole world war, as a matter of fact. <laughs> um, so. The Nesper website claims that Ed tried to enlist in the Marine Corps at 16 by lying about his age, uh, but failed. And if you've seen the pictures of him, you can imagine. They <laughs> was like, no, no, Steve, no. no, Steve Rogers, you're not, you're not joining right now, buddy. 
So, but then it says uh, he volunteered to join the Navy the day of his 17th birthday. Um, now, I went online and found Ed's draft card, and that tells a slightly different story. Um, uh, that's where I found out about his last name being Miney, was actually looking that up. So, like millions of other teenage boys, he got forcibly re- recruited. And there's no shame in that, but of course he has to make it seem like he just... He was he such had a hero. To go. I gotta go. I gotta fight some Nazis and you know fight the Japanese. Okay. So uh, if you go to the Nesper website, they'll find one of their blog entries uh, titled "I'm Going to Die Out Here." It says that on February 5th, the ship was quote somewhere in the North Atlantic unquote. Then randomly in the middle of the ocean, an oil tanker collided with their ship, the Spring Hill, causing a fireball. They were ordered to abandon ship, jumping into quote. Icy, shark-infested waters of the unforgiving sea. Unquote. So it was the sounds m- scary. It was in the middle of this freezing cold water, surrounded by fire, that Ed fucking Warren showed up. <laughs> As a former lifeguard, he quote, by default was an exceptionally adept swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's some bullshit. Okay. Continue. <laughs> because of his expert lifeguard training. Uh, the blog tells us that Ed saw another guy struggling in the water. So using all of his skills, he assisted the fellow sailor. Quote, and so with the young sailor in tow, Ed began swimming. But to where? As Ed swam, he realized the flames were everywhere and closing in. To the left, flames. Same thing to the right. And the center and behind. He was surrounded by fire. And to make matters worse, he witnessed sailors being attacked by sharks. They didn't, they've been in the water for like three minutes and sharks are already just like leaping out of the water and just biting people in half. It's amazing. That's fucking great. I mean. (laughs) It's so amazing. Where? Okay. It's just, I was about to say, where are they? But just somewhere. Getting back to the quote. They're just somewhere in the ocean. and, And dying right in front of him. If the sharks didn't get him, surely the flames would. And the icy cold sea. Oh, how cold the water was. It would be terrible to freeze to death in a fiery pool. <laughs> While being eaten by sharks. Sure. Uh, he had never felt cold like that before. He began to pray. Holy Mary, Mother of God, please, please save me. I don't want to die. Not here, not now. Unquote. As if the Mother of God was truly listening, Ed saw directly in front of him the flames part, an opening. Through the opening, a lifeboat with two sailors aboard navigated its way through the small opening. Ed's prayers were answered. Thank you, Mother Mary. Thank you for answering my prayers. Unquote. Okay. Well, I'm glad that he was the only one that was worthy of survival. Oh. <laughs> for his act of heroism, Ed was granted survivor's leave. Quote, he used the time to rush home to Lorraine, having just enough time to be with her a few hours before having to return to duty. Unquote. Now, he other other her. versions say that he married her in that, yeah. and, and then had that quickie. That's what they night. said. They said they so, had he married her. They had one night. That's that's what other the, versions of the story say. This one just said be with her, whatever. And well, then uh, well, <laughs> yeah, he married her, and then she got pregnant that night. Well, that's what they said there, but the daughter wasn't born for several years okay. later. Okay, so that's bullshit. Unless, so that she had documentary. Some, unless she had a miscarriage or something like that. Because they only have one kid, and she was not born until a few years later. Okay, that is not how that was there, represented. There, well, that's the thing. There's some inconsistency there, but we mm-hmm. at least we know how old Judy's spirit is. Like, she's a person who's alive, like, right now. So, now, far be it for me, Bambi, to double-check an American hero's war story as described in this amazing blog entry on a half-assed <laughs> website that looks like it was, like, from 2003. Uh, but... You know, when two ships crash into each other and explode, usually people write that shit down. Yeah. So here I found an article titled Death Toll Now 19 in Ship Explosion from February 7th, 1945. Uh, Issue of the New York Times, slightly, you know, reputable paper. Uh, It breaks down this very serious real accident. Quote, The Panamanian tanker Pancleo had licensed New York Sandy Howe pilot aboard when she rammed American tanker Spring Hill in Upper New York Bay. Uh, Specifically, she was anchored a thousand yards off Stapleton, Stanton Island. At 8.57 a.m. Monday, the impact is alleged to have touched off the explosion that all but destroyed the Spring Hill and two-thirds of her 120,000 drums of high-octane gasoline in the most spectacular fire seen in the harbor in many years. Unquote. Sounds serious. Yeah, it was very serious, and so the explosion definitely happened. And there's no way of knowing whether Ed really heroically saved some other guy's life uh, through his amazing lifeguard skills. 
And I guess if you want to be super generous, technically being anchored right off Staten Island is technically somewhere in the Atlantic. Atlantic. <laughs> I was um, about to say he was still in the U.S. I don't believe the waters were either super icy or shark infested and people were being like bitten in half. The reason why boats crashed into each other because this was wartime and they were in New York Harbor and they were so literally um, – there was a, a third boat so close that some of the flaming gasoline splashed and burned some of these other sailors. That's why it was so crowded. It wasn't just like they're in the middle of the ocean and one boat just accidentally drunkenly rammed ah. into the other one. So, yeah. This horrible Titanic but of course, moment. The Nesper uh, website has to change it to make it seem way more dramatic. I mean, it's like it's dramatic enough. He really was on that boat and had to jump in the water. You know, it's like that. And it was and scary was a, and it was, was a terrible. fucking teenage boy. <laughs> So it's like, but and even if he's, I mean, even if they wanted to say, yeah, and he helped one of his fellow sailors out. Of course, there's no one ever to corroborate that. No dude, no name of, you know, it's just, yeah, he saved a random guy and fine, whatever. I'll even give him the benefit of the doubt. But still, the way it was written in that website really mischaracterized it. And there were no fucking sharks. Fuck you. All right. There might have been little sharks, fish. There were maybe some fish. (laughs) Uh, Either way, Ed and Lorraine got married while he was still in the Navy. Uh, According to Lorraine, their daughter Judy was six months old before Ed came back from the war. And I do know from this other story I heard uh, at the end of that documentary um, that, yeah, he was was stationed in Japan post-war when his daughter Judy was born. So uh, times were tough for the young couple in post-war America. Uh, Ed enrolled in Perry Art School, uh, which was affiliated with um, Yale. Actually, so it was, okay. a, it was an art school extension of Yale, and I guess he was so using some kind of GI it was benefits. Very, it was very fancy. Yeah. Fancy art school. So Lorraine tells of their early plans to become landscaped artists, um, but they found an interesting angle. Quote, we needed a subject to paint, a good subject, something people could relate to. Well, haunted houses proved to be that subject. Ed would find a haunted house written up in the newspapers or get a lead on one from the locals in town. Then we'd drive up to the side in our old Chevy. Ed would do up a complete sketch of the house and grounds. All the while, of course, the owner of the place would be peeking out the window, wondering what the heck was going on. We were just kids then, so one of us would knock on the door, show them the sketch of the house, then offer it in exchange for information about the haunting. If the story was engrossing enough, we'd paint up the house for our collection, then sell it later at an art show. Unquote. Okay, that wasn't even from the documentary, because that's not what they said. This is sort of their their start is described in the most flattering terms possible. Um, they're post-show years for young families. So, like, other descriptions kind of leave the impression that Ed had a hard time holding down a traditional job. Um, <laughs> and he, you know, had done this art thing. So, so he was he kind of doubled down in his hobby slash obsession uh, with the paranormal. So, this weird couple would show up on the sidewalk in front of a house and then, like, be drawing somebody's house. And they, um, when they came out going, what, what the, the fuck are like, you doing? We're drawing your haunted house. <laughs> Can you tell us about the haunting? And they were like, oh, thank God. We thought yeah. you were going to rob us. <laughs> yeah. uh, the Nesper website reports the couple set up pop-up stands in tourist areas all over New England to sell Ed's paintings. Tony Spira, the guy married to the Warren's daughter Judy, keeps some of the art in the barn, still hosting the sign, Ed Warren's Barn Door Studio and Art School. And they're fine. Some are gothic and atmospheric. Others are just like middle-of-the-road American landscapes and houses. Uh, one is a cute picture of a witch flying her room through the moonlight with cartoony bats flying around. So I'm gonna I'm gonna show you real spooky. quick. You can just react. Tell us what do you think of what you're seeing? You know, Ed's. Okay, things. I mean it's it's a nice little drawing of a house. Yeah, they're fine. The kind of art you would just kind of see on somebody's wall, but not think a lot about. Doomed to fail. Oh, that's just some pop up. Okay, so you want me to scroll no, through? No, I here? mean you just just take a look at a few of the paintings, and if you have any reaction, it's just okay. It's a it's a picture of a house. Yeah, there Some you more. Go. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Oh, this one looks like a haunted house. Yeah, there are a few that have the more scary little elements. A little gothy, hot. It's literally, it's like if you were going to have a mind's eye picture of a haunted house, this is what it would look like. Yeah. It's so generic. Okay. Yeah, that was the uh, the Ed Warren art that got everything started okay well i mean he's not a bad artist all right he's fine but certainly not going to be making himself rich with those paintings no i mean he's nothing you know unusual or spectacular either right it was really just this weird obsession he had that that made them stand out uh lorraine reports that she was skeptical at first because she grew up with zero paranormal experiences except her mutant powers 
but didn't see ghosts or anything like that. Uh, she later said, quote, I was a little wary of the people with whom we spoke. I thought they were kind of suffering from overactive imaginations or were just making things up to get attention. In fact, some of the people told us stuff that sounded completely outlandish back then, <laughs> unquote. Okie dokie. Uh, it's interesting that Lorraine describes her transition from skepticism to belief as like a gradual process. Because you'd think that like if, the, if this shit's real, like there'd be some dramatic, like anything like you'd see in any of these movies or the stuff they talk about, like stuff flying across the room or... Yeah, you know, but I mean, but she just said oh, over time I got into it, you know. Although I have to say, as someone who has witnessed some weird shit and stills, like I, I would be more like willfully disbelieving, <laughs> as right. opposed to someone who's like would be considered a skeptic. But yeah, I I'm not an open-minded skeptic. I've <laughs> actually seen some really weird shit, and I'm like, no. There has to be an explanation for it, even if I don't know what that explanation is. So I can see that being like you witness yeah. a bunch of little shit and it kind of wears you down over yeah. time. Or Ed, Ed wore her down over time. Ed wore her down over time. He just browbeat her until she was like fine. So they spent like f five or so years just wandering around the country, drawing people's houses and collecting all these spooky stories. Um, and it was during this time Lorraine developed her superpowers that let her see beyond the veil of time. Okie dokie. Uh, the Demonologist, the book, claims that over the course of years, Ed's influence, quote, caused Lorraine's clairvoyance to develop significantly. Later, in the 1970s, Lorraine was tested at UCLA, where her clairvoyance was judged as being far <laughs> above average, unquote. That's hilarious, because <laughs> you know what? Now they've even attributed her bullshit superpower to Ed. It's really all well, it's, him. It's, it's, yeah, it's just, you know, because it's of his, because of he fine-tuned her gift because it's, she had the raw power, he had even, the knowledge. even her pretend superpower is really just because of a <laughs> yes, man. Naturally. Um, from the 19, I love this story already. From the 1940s through the 1960s, the Warrens transitioned from hobo artists slowly <laughs> towards something resembling a little more what you'd saw in the Conjuring movies. Uh, they founded the New England Society of Paranormal Research, NESPER, who we quote from quite a bit on their modern website. And I say modern, it looks like 20 years old. Uh, the couple collected strange stories and artifacts and billed themselves out as experts on ghosts and demons. As interest in the occult grew in the 1960s, so did the opportunities to monetize. I'm sure they did. Okay, so basically it's just like they collected all these stories and they were like, okay, now how can we bullshit these people? Yeah, in the, in the 40s and 50s, people didn't have much time for this nonsense, but the 60s was the beginning of interest in this sort of thing. And suddenly they were, they were just a little bit ahead of their time, but eventually culture caught up with them. So uh, defenders of Ed and Lorraine will be quick to point out that they never charge anyone for investigation. They only charge for hard expenses like... Like gasoline, hotel, and food, and stuff like that. Um, and so going all the way back to the early years. But if you're a hobo with yeah. nowhere to yeah, and go. Remember, and remember at the beginning, they, they started this by bribing people with art just to get in and get the stories. Because again, this is about Ed being obsessed. Um, but over time, they built up this reputation as experts on the occult and spirits and demonology. And so, like, you know, people started to kind of know, oh, yeah, those are those guys who know all about the ghost stories. So reporters would call them. And eventually, they managed to, like, I think it started in the 1970, I think, is when they started um, getting gigs lecturing at colleges. So if they eventually become expert witnesses for, like, the police, I'm just going to start throwing things. We're going to talk about some of that. Oh, good. And, but not yet. Now I now I do need some more weed. <laughs> Fucking assholes. Uh, this is also, um, so they were giving paid uh, lectures at colleges and tours of their occult history museum, which, uh, you know, is featured. If you saw the movie The Conjuring, then you know, and that, that was that creepy side room where they lock away all of the stuff. And, you know, including the the creepy doll that we're going to be talking the, about. The creepy doll. Yeah, we'll get into that. Oh, we're, oh, we're we'll getting, get into in, that. In a few minutes, we're getting into that. Um, so, except in the movies, it's this place they lock away dangerous artifacts and they don't want anybody to go in. In real life, they charged money and let anybody the fuck in that he wanted to get in. Um, and in fact, it's still possible to go there now. Um, it used to reside in the basement, but has since been moved into a building that resembles a large shed in the backyard. 
um, because of zoning laws uh, and legal troubles, they can no longer just give paid tours to anybody, but they'll do like, there's these group, you can go in through groups that it's technically private, but there, if you want to, mm. you can still arrange to get in. Um, and then you can just go meet Anna, Annabelle for yourself. Um, so right now it's mainly just film crews that make scary videos to keep the legend alive and stuff like that. But you know, and, and if you want to go in, they will douse your hands with holy water first. It is a rule. So American pop culture has been very good to the Warrens, uh, as cause like from the 1960s through the eighties, like interest and belief in the dark and supernatural forces coincided with the books, movies, and television. So, uh, the sixties gave us Rosemary's baby. And then the late 60s is when the novel version of The Exorcist hit the bestsellers list. And then, of course, you know, years later in the 1970s, the movie came. And so on. And, and, so and literally, forth, so it's forever. this weird thing. It, it fed into the belief, just like belief in aliens coincided with a lot of these goofy sci fi movies from the 50s. Uh, so there's this weird feedback loop of culture and, and belief. Oh, people. You people, know, technology evolves, but people do not. People, we are dumb and easily fooled. And then once we're fooled, we refuse to believe that we've been fooled. See, here's the hilarity. It's like a lot of Christians don't believe in evolution. It's like, well, I, I'm starting to not believe in evolution either because I don't think we've evolved. I think we're still just monkeys. Seriously. Uh, so everything we just talked about, this is just this has been setting the table. It's time for the main course. So let's talk about Ed and Lorraine's most celebrated and terrifying cases, many of which have been made into books, TV specials, and now a multi-billion dollar film franchise. Now, if Ed were still around, he would warn us that even thinking about these things too much is inviting dark forces into our lives and endangering our very souls. But... For our podcast audience. Say, he doesn't <laughs> want you to think about it too much, except for when you're listening to his podcast, his radio show. His and the fact that he would never shut the fuck up about any of this stuff ever. <laughs> but don't think about it too much. So we're risking not only our souls, but our podcast audiences as well. Yeah. So go to hell, people, literally. <laughs> With us, because we're going to talk about it. I say, fuck Ed Warren. Let's Jump in the handbasket, y'all. We're going for a ride. Let's talk shit about everyone's favorite creepy doll, Annabelle. You mean Raggedy Ann? Yeah, so we're, that's what we're about to get into. <laughs> dun, dun, dun. So I don't need to tell anybody who Annabelle is at this point. She's the most famous of the creepy dolls out there. She's more creepy than Robert the doll down in Florida. I want to go visit Robert the doll. Just because, why the fuck not? Unless at least Florida is better it's to go Florida. than, Florida. you know, you don't want to go to uh, Massachusetts. I mean, eh. Connecticut. I mean, it sounds fine, I guess, but I mean, Florida has beaches and... Yeah. However, so let's see, yeah. It's one of those weird things. Robert the Doll looks sort of genuinely creepy. He looks sort of like Jared Kushner. I was about to say, <laughs> even isn't Robert the Doll in the Keys? So yeah, it's not even just Florida. It's a, a really as far fucking as you can awesome go and still be in Florida. Florida. So, so, however, we're not talking about Robert the Doll. We're talking about Annabelle. And if you were to Google that name, the first image that'll pop up in your feed is a like this Victorian doll with a frankly upsetting porcelain smiles and eyes that are just a bit too wide. However, so, and if you saw The Conjuring, she was an important B plot of that movie. Mm -hmm. they Introduce the entire movie with Annabelle, and then she pops up in the middle as this threat, just so they can tease the three fucking movies they've made since then. So yeah, we've had three Annabelle movies. She's racked up this huge body count in the cinematic universe at this point. And in fact, is like, I guess through the second movie, even tied to the Manson murders. I didn't see the Annabelle movies, but I, I, yeah, I, I, I literally either. saw some of the names of the characters, and they're all fucking Manson murderers, <laughs> like Tex Watson. and. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so I guess I'll have to see at that point. To see what the f I've heard that Annabelle 2 is actually good, and that Annabelle 3 is at least entertaining. Like the Chucky I heard the movies? I heard, I heard the first Annabelle sucked, and the second one was really good. Kind of like we the original Ouija sucked, but Ouija 2 was actually a really good horror movie. It's like, like the Chucky movies. It's like the first one was scary, and then after that they got more comical. Yeah, but someone could say they went from scary to more entertaining. Yep. And in so. the movie versions, all the Warrens can do is just lock the doll away. Because if you destroyed, it would only release the demon and be even worse. So just keeping a hold, keeping Annabelle all locked away is the safest and best thing you can do. Uh, so... You know, convenient plot point. You have already spoiled what the real uh, Annabelle <laughs> looks like. She is, in fact, a Raggedy Ann doll. Yeah, see, and in my Three head, foot tall in my Ann. head, see, she's locked in a cabinet not being able to commit crimes, but somewhere out there, Andy is trying to take your soul. Yes, Andy Bell. 
Um, so yeah, this is a doll literally made of pillow stuffing and cloth with yarn for hair. <laughs> and she has like a little yarn little, little, smile. Little like, placid yarn smile. And, and whether you believe in her or not, you can understand why they redesigned her for the movies. Because she is not frightening to look at, even remotely. No, actually, it's very funny because um, I was talking to my son and about the Annabelle. And he actually has, like, dolls are creepy. Which is funny because I collect dolls. And so, but yeah, he has this inherent dolls so are creepy. You got mom's old creepy doll. I do. In fact, Aaron won't even let me put her in the attic. She has to be displayed at all times. She she changes hats with the season. Yeah, and now she's finally appropriate for Halloween. Well, she started out as a prop in my haunted tea party <laughs> at, you, in Bray Haunted House. Now she's convinced you to keep her out. That's and what she they do. has. She's convinced it's what me to they keep do. her out. And you know what? Mom had never named her, and now I have. So so Millie sits in my living Millie, room. Millie the doll. So we'll let you know if Millie starts killing animals and people or, or whatever. Millie has never harmed anything or anyone. She just sits there, and she looks pretty. I like her. All right. So, yeah. They made, but yeah, they, even, made they made movie Annabelle scary. Even people who, like my son, who thought that, like dolls They're into creepy dolls are, yeah dolls are creepy inherently looked at the raggedy Ann and was just like what the fuck that'd be like taking one of our old cabbage patch kids and telling us that, that was it's evil haunted. trevor is coming for us <laughs> all right uh so the year was 1968 bambi and according to the demonologist once again this book i've been quoting an episcopal priest called the warrens to check in in a situation where two young women had contacted a spirit that had physically attacked someone Ed and Lorraine came with a tape recorder to document the interview, which is transcribed in the book. So the, here's the thing. The, the names are different. Uh, the book, The Demonologist, gives the names that I'm going to use here, but then every other interview and thing you'll find uses other names. So I say Deidre. Apparently the real name is Donna. Okay. But either way, so... So nobody really knows. Well, I, mean, I think that it's just like this for whatever reason. That when it came to Annabelle... Um, they, they didn't they change be. the names and, and we'll talk about that in a second. So, um, Annabelle was given to a nurse named Deidre, the name in the demonologist as a birthday gift. She's like 28 years old. Who the fuck gives a raggedy Ann doll to a 28 year old woman? Yeah. So, well, she like moved into an apartment. It was like a little housewarming gift to her daughter. I'm going to give my daughter this doll. And apparently her daughter liked to sleep with big pillowy dolls. It's kind of like you'd sleep with a side pillow. That's what she would use Annabelle for. Um, and this is before she was Annabelle. She's just Raggedy Ann doll, for, apparently, supposedly from a secondhand store. So this is like a, a used old Raggedy Ann doll, according to the story. Um, Who like in from the, the thrift world store, wants to a cuddle someone's cuddle a, old? Cuddle a thrift store Raggedy Ann doll. That is horrific. Smells like an ashtray and armpits. What the fuck? Yeah. Yeah, great present, Mom. Thanks. Well, except this is what the story says. And then... Over the next year, they would just notice little weird things going on. So um, at first, they would just see the doll shifted positions from when they left and the doll was alone all day. The legs would be crossed or uncrossed or the arms would be different or the doll would whatever, just some little things. And then suddenly the doll would be in a different side of the room or in another room entirely. And it just got more, it escalated the doll moving around while they were gone, but just, but always perfectly still. And then like odd poses. They said at one point they saw the doll kneeling in a doorway and you can't even get Raggedy Ann to kneel. So, like, the moment she, they picked her up, like, they could never get her to do it again. But she was, like, weirdly kneeling in position. Then it started leaving notes. And they actually did that in The Conjuring, too. They showed did it. she write in crayon? Little, those were supposed to be pencil notes on scraps of parchment paper. And they're like, we don't even have parchment paper. And the notes would say things like, help us. Okay, so how did the doll get the parchment paper? How did Raggedy Ann with no fingers pick up a fucking... Her hand's like a little pillow. At least Annabelle, they showed it where she could sort of almost hold a crayon. But Raggedy Ann couldn't even do that. But so they see these little notes. And so Deidre and her roommate, Laura, ruled out someone punking them. So they were like... They thought maybe someone was sneaking in and fucking with them. So they did things like taping the doors and doing stuff the rugs to kind of catch anybody coming in and out of their place. Nope. No one's coming in and out. Annabelle... Which, once again, is just so far still just Raggedy Ann is just doing this. Uh, so this was about six weeks into this, the, the, the more intense shit going on okay, related to so, the doll. Oh, okay. All right. So this is where we're six weeks into the doll, moving around and writing notes and weird shit. So then they decide to call it, contact a psychic medium. And this person comes in and they hold a seance to try to commune with whatever ghost is messing with this doll. And they learn that a little girl had died on the property a seven-year-old girl named Annabelle Higgins. 
So she's from the time before the apartments were even built. So she's this confused little ghost apparently wandering around. And, and so she, the doll and these younger women were the first people she got attached to. Uh, she said she was the one moving things around. And so speaking through the medium, Annabelle Higgins asked for permission to stay with the girls, well, young women, and uh, move into the doll. And so Deidre and Laura said yes and gave permission, let them go into the doll. See, and this is why you can never trust a psychic medium. Because, you know, what could go wrong from here? Well, we're about to find out. <laughs> Deidre's fiance, Cal, claimed the doll gave him recurring nightmares. He told one harrowing story about how uh, he had like a third person nightmare. So he's literally looking at his own body laying there on the couch while he's taking a nap. And he's just standing there like an astral form or whatever, looking at it. And then he sees Annabelle crawling up his paralyzed body. And then her little hands going on his neck. And he's like, he's seeing himself thrash as Annabelle strangling him. And then he wakes up in a cold sweat. How does a pillow strangle you? Yeah, once again. I mean, if she, she would have smothered his hands and mouth, I could at least. She doesn't have any fucking <laughs> fingers. <laughs> she doesn't have enough bone structure to like. But this doesn't matter. It was a dream anyway. So this is super strong dream. You know dream hard... Annabelle. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's also like, okay. So it's so strangling someone's like in the movies, not in like real life because yeah. strangling someone in real life is actually hard. Well, even he's admitting this is just a nightmare and he wakes up, but it's still, he blames the doll. But doll's giving, him, the doll. doll's giving him these scary dreams. Uh, another time he heard noises late at night. And he heard a strange, like strange noises in the other room, and and then he just finds the Raggedy Ann doll just in the corner. So he went to take a look at the doll, and then suddenly he felt something behind him. And when he turned around and didn't didn't see anything, he suddenly screamed, and bloody claw marks appeared in his chest, soaking through his shirt, four down, three across. Ooh. But magically, the cuts healed quickly and left no scars. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. Magic. So everything's fine. End of story. Yeah. The end. Nightmares and quick healing cuts. Okay. But yeah. His t-shirt was ruined. You had to throw it out. Okay. So nightmares and basically more nightmares. Cool. Ed determined that Annabelle Higgins was an invention. That the entity now inside the doll was never human to begin with. It was instead a demonic spirit. So Ed called in a priest who performed an exorcism blessing on each room in the apartment to banish the negative mojo, and the Warrens put the doll in the car. So on the way home, their car started to stall on all the curves, and they almost crashed. So Ed sprinkled Annabelle with holy water so she'd knock that shit off until they got home. <laughs> From the demonologist again, quote, For the next few days, Ed sat the doll in a chair next to his desk. The doll levitated a number of times in the beginning, then seemed to fall inert. During the ensuing weeks, however, it began showing up in various rooms of the house. When the Warrens were away and had the doll locked up in the outer office building, they would often return to find it sitting comfortably upstairs in Ed's easy chair when they opened the main front door. It also turned out that Annabelle came with a friend, a black cat, that would occasionally materialize beside the doll. The cat would stalk once around the floor, taking particular notice of books and other objects in Ed's office, then return to the doll's side and dematerialize from the head down, unquote. So Raggedy Ann was friends with the Jush Cat? Yeah. Okay. All right. I mean, it doesn't sound like any more bullshit than the other bullshit, so <laughs> let's just keep going. Yeah, we, got, we got dematerializing cats. I mean, I'm if, if the, the bullshit's getting deep in here, should I get so, a shovel? It seems that Annabelle hates priests. Uh, growling sounds were heard when one visited the Warren's weird basement. Another disrespected the doll and tossed it onto a chair. On the way home, the Padre's brakes failed and he was almost killed in an accident. Which also, by the way, seems to be, the, like, if you take the Warren's version of Annabelle, that seems to be her primary way of killing people is, is auto car, is, accident. car accidents. Wow. I mean, that demon knows a lot about cars. Um, if that wasn't dramatic enough, a year later they were having a party and a priest went to chat with the rain in a side room where Annabelle was hanging out. Because this is back before they locked How her away. How many priest parties do they have? They are super Catholics. They are constantly hanging out I with mean, priests. I mean, all they do is like hang out with priests and get mm -hmm. and almost... Get drunk with priests. because that's And drive off cliffs or whatever. So Annabelle wasn't locked away at this point. She's just hanging around the She's house. She's just chilling. So, they, so Lorraine goes to have a conversation with this priest in a side room. Annabelle's there. And suddenly a wall decoration, which was described as a seven-inch boar tusk necklace, it just explodes and shards of this necklace just fly all over the priest and Lorraine. A boar tusk necklace. I mean, boar tusks are pretty long. What? Yeah. I, 
So they have this like necklace. Like at a bee? Did they make bee? That's what it said. I got, was I, it just a large it was like, it was just a, I don't know. It was just a necklace, and it, the necklace exploded. And then a guest with a camera ran in and snapped a picture. Uh, and that supposedly shows two beams of light that are coming straight uh, from above Raggedy Ann's head pointed at the priest in this picture that the Warrens haven't shown anybody and is not available to see. Uh, but, oh. but the author okay. so the author tells us all there about it. There was evidence, There's but a it's lot of mysteriously people, disappeared. I'll tell you this. There's a, a lot of times I'll describe these pictures or recordings, like these interviews and stuff. Mm-hmm. Even though there are supposedly transcriptions or descriptions of something people are looking mm-hmm. at, nope, they won't just show you or let us hear it. Nope. All the best evidence is just locked away. It's too good. It's, it's just too good to show us. <laughs> um, another time, Lorraine Blow had- Blow you away. Yeah. We got to ease you into this. Another time, Lorraine had to move Annabelle because it was creeping out a contractor who was doing some work in the house. He was like, uh, lady, can you get this creepy doll that's just staring it's at me? It's staring at me. Uh, so after hitting With the d- black, so she sp- sightless, glassy eyes. Yeah, well, except Ugh. it's not. It's her felt. <laughs> uh, well, no, Raggedy Ann had buttons for yeah, eyes. Yeah, her button eyes. Um, so so Lorraine hits her her the doll and her hands with holy water. She picks it up, and that's when the Warrens' tabby cat Marcy went bananas and started wailing and and demanding to be let outside. The moment Lorraine picked Annabelle up when she didn't want to be handled. Um, the Warren's son-in-law, Tony Spiras, says Ed built the special case for Annabelle in the late 1970s, uh, apparently just completely sick of the doll's bullshit. Uh, it was it was stained with holy water and holy oil, like the in-the-wood stain itself. Just mixed it in there into yep. the varnish. Yep. I mean, that's a way to do it. Yeah, and uh, had a pr- uh, prayer inscribed by a priest inside the case. Ed hand the letter to sign that reads, Warning, positively do not open. That's outside of Annabelle's case to this mm-hmm. very day. Yeah, I loved how it was like a curio case in the yeah. movie, but it's really a coffee table. It's just this tiny little box yeah. that Ed built himself. It's a little glass coffee table. Yeah. Uh, Tony also said that one uh, that one time a college student tapped on Annabelle's glass and talked shit about the doll and then died in a motorcycle accident on the way home. Because once again... You fuck with Annabelle, she will fuck with your ride. Okay, so... Again, no names, no details, no, no accident reports or anything. And even then, people get in fucking car, car accidents. accidents. Like, the fact that people who took a tour and then somebody gets a, gr- and gets a, car, into a accident, car accident... Gets a car accident and dies. Yeah, it's not a... You, that, wouldn't, that wouldn't be rock solid, even if they did give us a name. But they <laughs> won't even do that. Because <laughs> supposedly the guy's girlfriend survived, and she 100% believes it's Annabelle, or at least so they say. You just she can't. can't open that door into her own mind because then it can psychically hurt you. So I, how does that even, whatever. So, okay. so all that, that's the official version of Annabelle. That's the, that's the one they want us to believe in. Honestly though, it's her, it's her accomplice, Andy. He's getting under there with his, with his little, he's the one his little felt shit. hands. <laughs> You, he's he's handy with a wrench. No one's looking for Andy. No one's looking but for Andy. Annabelle's just like, I'm right here. Um, but let's put on our skeptic hats for just a minute here. Here's a problem. With most of the Warren's case files, whether you believe in any of it or not, there's like real people involved. Like you said, you watched a whole documentary mm-hmm. that had people giving Lots interviews and talking about it, or at least pictures of them. You know, did you notice how when they talked about Annabelle at the end? Well, you didn't, I don't think you saw the no, end of it. No, I did not. But they do. They don't. They're, weirdly Nothing. enough, none of the, none of that. They just the Amityville horror was the one they really wanted to focus yeah. on. Well, that's the most famous, famous of all the things. Even the, and we're going to get into where that goes uh, coming up in part two. But um, but the, every other story we'll cover has like verifiable human beings attached to it. Except for the Warrens' version of events, there is literally no one to corroborate anything about where Annabelle came from in the first place. All compelling evidence, including tape-recorded interviews and photographs that are all mentioned in these texts and on the websites and shit, have never been made available to anyone. So, Well, that's the thing. If it's, it was like bought at a thrift store if as it was, a This gift. is the late 1960s or a 28-year-old girl. They're, they're, it, for all those years, certainly someone involved in this crazy story could have come forward and said, yeah, I was the original owner of Annabelle. Or they could have just given the names and said, like, every other person yeah. has a name. These people have had two different versions of their name and just vague, vague, vague shit. Vagueness. And so, let, but it, it gets worse. So let's keep going here. Um, the specifics of the story have also changed and shifted around, like different versions of who threw Annabelle and then got into a car accident are different depending on when you hear the story, blah, blah, blah. And we'll give them credit. Let's say human memory is flawed, but let's just look elsewhere. 
One other issue I have is while Ed, Lorraine, and Tony uh, Spira speak of Annabelle as if she's the most dangerous thing they've ever encountered, they've spent years showing the doll off to anyone who would pay them to take a museum tour. Uh, Now that the museum is closed to the public, Tony brings the doll out for paranormal festivals and even took the doll to Las Vegas a few years ago. Nice. Did it gamble? I don't know. Was it a hot winner? So while I was writing the script for this very episode... I just stumbled onto a charity live stream happening for the YouTube channel Overnight. So these are like guys who, uh, they do overnights in big famous haunted locations. Okay. And they were doing a multi-day live stream um, where they were in the Warrens Occult Museum. One guy's literally in a metal chair sitting right next to Annabelle. And I was writing the script and I just saw, and I, I kept it live for a while while I was writing this. Just watching these 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 chuckleheads just goofing around. They're at this point, they've been doing this for days. They're staying up all night. They're punch drunk. One guy at one point was air humping right in front of Annabelle's case. <laughs> so if Annabelle isn't uh, and everyone seems okay, but even though these guys, I think these guys are goofballs, they were um, raising money for a worthy charity, trying to raise uh, six hundred sixty-six thousand dollars towards feeding people. Which and they were halfway there, so you know what? Fine, I, I'll, I'll I'll let it go. Don't allow it. <laughs> it's fine. Plus, if Annabelle and Annabelle's apparently in support too, because she's not killing any of these people. Yeah, no. Apparently, you know what? Maybe she liked being dry humped occasionally. Yeah, that's probably the most action Annabelle's gotten in a while. Um, so if Annabelle isn't actually a demonic doll, where did they come up with the idea? One theory lets us blame Rod Serling. So. Depending on the specific source, Annabelle pops up in the late 60s or the year 1970, and I'm going to say actually probably 1970 for reasons I'm about to tell you. According to the website History vs. Hollywood, quote, Given the style of the real doll, it was most likely purchased new since that particular Raggedy Ann doll with the calico dress does not predate the 1970s, unquote. So even though they say it's this old thrift store doll... It's the dress sewed right onto her so says someone no. actually yeah. Lorraine went to the fucking store, store. and bought a raggedy end doll brand new because that style didn't exist before 1970. So again, this don't even match the year on their own official version of 1968. So either way, it was November 1st on 1963 when a memorably creepy episode of The Twilight Zone aired. The Talking Tina yeah, Doll. Talkie Tina. This episode is titled Living Doll. It tells the story of a jerk stepfather played by Telly Savalas who becomes angry when his wife buys a doll named Talkie Tina for her daughter. And uh, so it's like, they don't really make it clear. They show that like, he's the stepfather. He'd married this single mother. And you don't know, he may just be shooting blanks or maybe he's having like true sexual dysfunction, but he's very insecure about the fact he can't have children with his wife and all he's stuck with is his stepdaughter. So he's being a real asshole to both of them in this episode. So the doll begins giving uh, stepdad creepy and threatening messages. As the story goes on, uh, he becomes more increasingly unhinged throughout this episode. So first he tries to throw the doll away and then he tries to destroy it. And the doll's like, like has powers at this point. Like he tries mm-hmm. to melt its face off with a blowtorch. He can't, he tries to squeeze its head with a vice. My name's <laughs> Talkie Tina and I don't like you very much indeed so literally at the end when uh, he he literally is like he was about he drove his wife was about to move out because he's gone completely crazy and you don't know all the way up to this point in the episode you're not sure if the doll is really doing it or whether he's just crazy because it's always just him alone <laughs> having these experiences with the doll so in the end he gives the doll back uh to the, the little girl but then he goes to bed and he wakes up in the middle of the night hears a weird noise and he runs out and then trips over the doll at the top of the stairs There's rolls down the stairs breaks his neck and literally dies. The light fades from his eyes where he's staring into Talkie Tina's eyes. And then mom finds, uh, you know, husband and the doll at the bottom of the stairs. She picks up the doll who says, my name is Talkie Tina and you'd better be nice to me. And so it was like a very cool, you know, creepy yeah, episode, creepy of, the Twilight episode Zone. of the Twilight Zone. Now, granted, have you ever actually heard the original, like, talking doll, the Edison talking doll? Well, yeah, there's the Edison talking doll. That at this point, Chatty Cathy was the popular one. Yeah, this Chatty Cathy, that was from the 60s. Right. But however, like, the original one, the Edison one, you could understand how people would have thought, 
That is the creepiest Voice fucking thing Satan. I've ever heard. I mean, that's probably where the entire like haunted doll came from, just because that thing was <laughs> fucking well, ridiculously yeah, there have been haunted scary. doll stories going back, but this is this sort yeah. of weird idea. But here's the kicker, Bambi. You know, the mom there holding the doll at mm-hmm. the end of the episode. Her name was Annabelle. <laughs> Well, there you go. So, yeah, it's like they're not even going to. They're not even trying. Not even trying too hard. Why try? So, like, a few years later, they're like, let's buy a Raggedy Ann doll. I mean, allegedly, Jamie's, in Jamie's opinion, (laughs) this is all complete bullshit based on what I've just said. But you're never going to guess what. There was just too much Ed and Lorraine to cram into a single episode no matter how much I wanted to. So now that we've ruined Annabelle, we're going to ruin The Conjuring, all of its sequels, The Amityville Horror, A Haunting in Connecticut, and even some more movies and and books and shit. Uh, And maybe take a hard look in Ed and Lorraine's perfect marriage. All that and bad jokes in part two. Oh, okay. Coming up. Thank you. If you're listening and sticking with us, Uh, we appreciate it. We've been gone for a while, but we're going to try to at least be back (laughs) semi-regularly. Uh, We're we're not holding ourselves to quite as tight a schedule anymore. Fingers crossed. I got my charity this week. Uh, I was laughing at the guys having the sleepover with Annabelle, but I do think it's awesome that they're raising money for Feeding America. So in solidarity with these goofballs, these these ghost bros, I'm going to recommend the same. Uh, Feeding America is the largest hunger relief organization in the United States. Uh, They're a nationwide network of food banks, food pantries, and community-based organizations in the largest one in the country. So they work to end hunger and provide food to millions of people every year. You can learn more and support their work at feedingamerica.org. And I have picked uh, what I'd consider to be the scariest thing happening here in the United States, and uh, that's police wanting to train in urban warfare. So my charity for now until we stop it is... Stop Cop City. Well, it's stopcopcity.org is the organization, but it's the if Atlanta you, if, police. Um, well, if you look up, there's the um, there's the Atlanta Solidarity Network. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a number of – if you literally just look up the Stop Cop City, City movement, you will see a number of charities and bail funds and other things to support the protest movement that is trying to prevent uh, – a huge area of forest from being raised. So a giant urban training center. So militarized police from all over the country and even uh, the The world world. will come here uh, just to make the police even worse than they are now. So that's So I'm all uh, about it. Police are scary and we should not train them to terrorize us. Less haunted houses. If cops were shooting less people. Yeah. For Uh, reals. And yeah, once again, uh, remembering Ed Warren's dad, look up 40% of all cops. (laughs) We'll talk to you later. See you in part two. All right, bye. See ya.